Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Letter Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos' book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Letter Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss Disco Donnie, the DEA, and the rave bus that brought the first era of rave to an end. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or shall I say techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And last week, we talked about the feel-good show of the book so far, the Detroit Electronic Musical Festival from early in 2000. And now it's time to talk about a great big bummer. We're talking about the future fat Hong Kong Fooey show in New Orleans, Louisiana, August 26, 2000. And it wasn't the promoters or musicians that made this a great big bummer. Yeah, the DEA comes in real heavy and they use the crack house laws for the first time to try and go after a promoter. And this is actually a story that I've got a, a personal connection to because uh, Disco Donnie is the one that, that whose face is attached to to this whole story. But his partner, uh, DJ Strife in the Freebase Society, he is actually my co-promoter's cousin from the United States. So we brought him up for a, a rave in 2001. And he told us all about all the crazy stuff that was going on there with Disco Donnie and everything else like that. It was, uh, it was pretty intense hearing it basically second, like, like so close to us. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, this is where stuff got serious and it was a bad, a bad scene. And Disco Donnie is a guy named Donnie Estopinol, um, who, or James, Donnie Estopinol, called Disco Donnie after his dad, who was also a DJ, and apparently not a great dad. Um, it's it's hard to say. The book the book definitely paints him as a as a terrible absent father. Other interviews I've read with Disco Donnie seem to imply that he spent a lot of time in the disco with his dad. So it's I'm not sure. You know, with Disco Donnie, there's a lot of uh, presentation and there's a lot of character, and you never really know where you know, disco Donnie ends and the real James begins kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, that's very true. And there's a quote, you know, uh, I, I made a middle note to try to pay attention to the quotes Matos puts at the beginning of these chapters. And this week's quote is it's disco Donnie asking a security guard, what does plur stand for? And the R. So I guess the, the security guard got the PL and you, um, and the R goes rehab, which, <laughs> is <laughs> pretty good. Plur, of yeah, course, this, this, for... this is a this is a quote from uh, Rise, the uh, the story of Disco Donnie, which is a, a documentary that you can find if you look hard enough on the internet. It's uh, it's, it's on it's, Amazon. Well, it's on Amazon in America. Oh up, yeah, up, yeah. Up here in Canada, I had to I had to pay some fly by night website like three dollars, and we'll see whether or not you know my credit card gets used to buy like a couple thousand dollars worth of jade in China or something like that. So. <laughs> The things I do for this podcast. I know. I need to get you to help me track down the KLF documentary that's only available on Amazon in the UK. I have that. I have the whole thing. Well, we'll solve that. But anyway, PLUR, of course, stands for Peace, Love, Unity, and Respect, and was a big motto of ravers in the 90s. But the guard thought it stood for rehab, which is a reasonable enough supposition. Yeah, it's a pretty good joke. It's a pretty good joke. Uh, You know, the, the documentary reminded me of a bunch of if you want the documentary doesn't delve into disco donnie's legal problems with the crack house law it it implies that it does and the documentary came out in 2004 a couple years after everything was resolved but this is one of those creative products where you know it was clearly filmed in like a couple of nights they got their footage and then they just did what they could with it 
and they tacked Disco Donnie as a starring feature on him after he became a bit of a national celebrity due to this whole crack house law thing. But it has nothing really to do with any of that. But there was a, a lot of like fond memories. It's the perfect movie if you weren't there to see what it was like, to see what the people were dressed like, to see what the vibe was and how everybody was acting. And one of the things that it reminded me of is the, the security that you hire for these raves. They're always... You always want to get these kind of lighthearted Joker guys who are who are you know might not understand what's going on, but they they think it's pretty all right. And this is that security guard is exactly like that. <laughs> Definitely, and and the movie is delightful. It really, they uh, feature a number of ravers, young kids that are that are fans, and I I think it gives you a feel for what people are into the positive side of the scene and the music in it is really good. I think Josh Wink did the soundtrack for it. Um, but yeah, this chapter focuses mostly on the legal problems, but once again, as his want to do, Matos weaves in quite a bit of the national story and, and what's going on. And he uses this episode to kind of talk about the greater South, not just new Orleans, but what's going on and the overall thing. And as he is want to do, he brings back one of these recurring characters. And this time it's Tommy sunshine who, uh, we, talked about in the further or even further chapter we talked about him in the storm rave chapter we talked about him in the grave chapter so he's been around he's definitely been around and in the mid 90s he stumbled across atlanta which you know uh, i guess he hadn't heard about a mid-sized or large city in the in the american southeast but he liked it he moved there from around 95 to 99 um he went to interstellar overdrive in lexington kentucky and in August of 94 first, after we saw him at Further, where he, I believe he confronted a policeman completely out of his gourd and holding a bunch of drugs and managed to talk the guy off. And that was when he decided, I, I need to get away from show promotion. But he goes to Interstellar Overdrive in Lexington, sees a 23-year-old woman flatline off of a heroin overdose. She actually survived, but that freaked him out. So he keeps moving. He moves to Atlanta likes it, starts getting DJ gigs, bluffs his way into managing a record store, record store called Wish, which was owned by Scott Richmond, who also owned New York Satellite Records. And by 1999, he's managing 12 DJ employees there at the record store. And I think the point of this anecdote was really to tell, tell people how big record stores were in the 90s. And that dance music tended to be specialty shops because they still had vinyl where everybody else had cds almost exclusively uh, by that point and yeah at this point in time that like basically any cd uh, any city that you went to would have several uh, specialty dance vinyl stores like ottawa where i'm from is not a big city not a big city at all uh you know it's a million people if you cheat and count all of the suburbs that, that are kind of like an hour away and we had uh three or four vinyl like underground dance vinyl stores in it uh, around 1998 so it just goes to show you like you know the business was booming at this time yeah and it was still very vinyl the 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 cd players that you could mix with hadn't really been perfected yet so dj's really needed to play on turntables with vinyl records which meant that the records were made on vinyl because the dj's were the were the key audience and a lot of them were really small print runs and um you know tommy sunshine talks about how every sunday they would do their their orders and the New York office would play him samples of tracks uh, over speakerphone, and he'd have to decide, do I need to order more of this or, or not? But let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is Left Field's Song of Life from 1992. A song of life from left field 1992 ryan we're in 2000 why'd you pick this one what's going on here ah uh, well you know this episode i decided to pick a bunch of songs off of the disco donnie documentary and oh. the movie starts with song of life and it might be a 1992 track this is the uh, 12 inch mix which is personally my favorite other than the cut for life remix but uh this, this track 
Song of Life is one of those rave tracks that like there's 30 different versions of it leading up to 1997 when Left Field put out Leftism was the album. And then Song of Life, the album version becomes the one that everybody knows. But before that, it was just a, a killer uh, on vinyl. And there were so many different versions of it out there that uh, it, it, it kept its uh, it kept its importance over over those 10 years, as you can tell, considering the fact that the movie uh, the the documentary in 2004 opens up with Song of Life. So it's one of those uh, timeless rave anthems. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it gives you a feel for the way people were not just dancing to the new releases, they were dancing to what made them dance. And so DJs would keep a lot of of uh, oldie but goodies in, in their boxes and play them at, at sets. And the last thing you mentioned about uh, retail, music retail at this point in time, is that 1999 was the zenith of the U.S. record industry. It sold $16.4 billion in CDs alone. And the vinyl sales were, you know, a minor subset of that, but still very healthy numbers and could support, like you said, lots of lots of stores. And then the South overall, you had um, kind of, you know, it's a big sprawled out area. And so it, it rave took hold more sporadically uh, in the spread out south than it did further north. And you had areas like Lexington, Louisville, and St. Louis that were basically connected to the Midwest scene. If you've ever been in those cities, you know that they're just a hop, skip, and a jump away from Chicago and very much in touch with the, the Midwest. So they were kind of integrated into that. Florida, as we've talked about, had its own self-contained circuit. Florida is very much the 58th state or whatever out in its own world. But you also had like Charlotte, North Carolina, which had a, a, a pretty good thriving scene. You had Dallas, Nashville, and Atlanta. You know, and Charlotte, you get say 500 people out for a party. Nashville and Atlanta, you get several thousand people out um, for parties. But for size and spectacle, New Orleans exerted Southern Rave's most magnetic pull. And a lot of the credit goes to James Espinal Jr., a.k.a. Disco Donnie. Um, yeah, his Zulu parties uh, in New Orleans were, were legendary. I mean, and, and talk about like a perfect launching pad for your rave promotion is, is having uh, Mardi Gras and Zulu was uh, the big Mardi Gras weekend rave that would, uh, there, there'd be multiple pre-parties and after parties through it. But the big Zulu event was the, what the, was the centerpiece of it. And that would, that would clear like 10,000 people. And it would be a big, big, massive thing every year. Yeah, and he put on parties like the Psychedelic Pimp Daddy Land on May 24th, 1997, Attack of the 50-Foot Raver Zombies, October 30th, 1999. So he definitely had a, a certain flair and, and branding, uh, obviously, the, the name of this, this week's party, the Future Fat Hong Kong Fooey Party. And they tended to be held at the State Palace Theater in downtown New Orleans. He had a good partnership with the owners uh, there. And, and by uh, 2000, he was selling tickets in 20 states, partnering with Ticketmaster. He's co-promoting other shows in Dallas, Atlanta, Miami. Uh, and don't take it from me. Take it from Tommy Sunshine. We were talking about earlier. He, he, the, uh, as Mato says, Tommy Sunshine, who's been arrested at grave, gone berserk at the final storm, ra storm rave, and gotten so fried at further that he passed out but kept dancing, said Donnie threw the cra craziest parties ever in America. No question. So quite a feat. Yeah, he's definitely got a well-deserved reputation for kind of capturing the North American rave ethos because this is, you know, it's important. We spend so much time talking about UK rave and European rave and uh, North American rave often doesn't get its uh, props for being this whole cultural touchstone. And uh, these events in New Orleans really uh, solidified, you know, uh, that this is this is an event for outsiders and weirdos to congregate and and express themselves in, in a beautiful way. Uh, so uh, the, these events are, are were, were, were really kind of key ones. And uh, and you, you can't really say enough about all of uh, Disco Donnie's parties. Maybe the only thing that I'd say that he did wrong was he, when he was throwing parties in New Orleans, the promotion company that they decided to call it was uh, it was Free Base Society, you know, Free Base. And the base was, was two yeah. S's, like base instead of, you know, Free Base and Crack, because that's witty. And this is a weird trend. Uh, rave promoters often give their rave company names crazy drug reference double meanings and it's just not a good idea because when the DEA is looking for somebody to make an example of they're going to come after the freebase society yeah it's it's definitely um 
uh, and there was a whole ethos in the 90s of sort of transgressive, quote unquote, uh, type things. And so some of the names for his events are a little bit dubious taste. And in the movie, he's walking around with the Confederate flag ball cap on. And it's part of a costume. He's playing a character. And they even show him talking to a black guy he bumps into and trying to make it clear to the guy, hey, I hope this isn't offending you. It's just a joke or whatever. But when you need to make that explanation, you might want to just reconsider your joke. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, he was he was big into the idea of like, you know, dressing like a pimp or dressing like, you know, it was uh, yeah. it, it was the time of kind of uh, edgy anti-establishment stuff. And uh, like he had a, a, a series of club nights called Tight and they used to have pictures of sex dolls on the on the cover of it and stuff. So this is just the kind of thing that was like a standard late 90s kind of edgy, edgy thing. And his his events were kind of full of those. And some of the ideas were great. and Some of the ideas were terrible. Uh, but, you know, it takes a little bit of, of, of insanity and crazy ideas in order to uh, to kind of keep people interested. Yeah, and we talked about Woodstock 99 last time, and that's kind of what this culture sort of morphed into. It, it went from this sort of rebellious outsider thing into this sort of frat boy uh, uh, yuckiness. But let's get back to Disco Donnie. He moved home to Atlanta. He went to LSU in Baton Rouge for college. It doesn't say if he graduated or not, but he majored in accounting. Came he home. graduated. He's, okay. a, he's a smart guy. So he's an accountant, and he moves home in 1994. Uh, his father... Disco Jim had abandoned the family, just moved away one weekend, and then the mother finally tracked him down like a year later, and he had become Disco Jim and become this DJ. And like you said, Donnie talks in the movie about you know sleeping on the floor at the disco and stuff. So uh, he was definitely involved in his father's career, but um, and he was a fraternity president at LSU, and uh, uh, frequently would like book acts like REM and Love Tractor. And this was this Athens, Georgia alternative rock scene that was big in the 80s. And he was doing that. Then he gets his first taste of rave culture at Ruby Fruit Jungle uh, in New Orleans at Cafe Instable. And he was like blown away by the mix of people. It was like he was like it was drag queens, supermodels, hookers, frat guys, everybody. But it was just about 100 people, and he couldn't believe you know so few people were involved in what he thought was just such an incredible scene so he volunteers to help the promoters with the next show the next time he brings in such a big crowd dramatically larger you know larger by like a multiple of five that he asks for 50 percent next time and gets it and so he becomes disco donnie this legendary pr promoter and it's uh, crazy how he started out basically as a flyer guy and just uh you know in, in the beginning when he was flying he was one of those flyer guys it's not like uh you know oh you're getting x number of dollars an hour to stand outside of this club and do it he was he was just hunting down the promoters asking for stacks of flyers and just going out and doing it because he was a true believer and that slowly morphed into him getting so good at it that he became the, uh, the the promotional flyer guy that everybody was kind of looking for. And and let me tell you, like, uh, you can be the idea guy, you can be the head promoter, but you ain't shit without a, uh, a solid flyer network distribution guy. And that's where Disco Donnie came in and where he kind of uh, cut his teeth as, uh, and, and grew into uh, becoming the main kind of New Orleans promoter. Yeah, pre-internet in the 90s, we called this stuff guerrilla marketing um, and or street teams. And that's definitely Don, Donnie was a one-man street team. But let's hear our next song. This is Transsetters, Roaches, Bugs in Slacker's Basement Remix from 2000. The Bugs in Slacker's Basement remix of Roaches by Transsetters from 2000. Why did we pick this one? I just wanted to show people kind of where Trance was sitting around the year 2000, where, you know, the best stuff was straddling kind of between the more commercial Trance sound and the, the progressive elements that kind of allowed for a more uh, a trancey vibe to, to emerge. And Slacker is one of those artists that, uh, you know, didn't put out terrible 13 minute bore fests, but, but managed to combine the best of, of 
both progressive and uh, you know more epic, uplifting trance into one package. And what a package it was. And this was the kind of stuff people were dancing to uh, in this period. Trance was having a big moment. And like you said, Progressive House was having a big moment at that time, too. Um, and so but back to Disco Donnie. Um, by, let's see, uh, 1995, he drew 1,500 people to his first Mardi Gras event at the State Palace Theater. He hired DJs Mystic Bill and Terry Mullen from Chicago. And basically, he didn't know much about the scene or who was who or what was what, but he would read the massive... And he would get hands on flyers from New York, Atlanta, and D.C., and he would just look for the headliners and track them down and try to book them for his shows. So, And this is a standard thing that was going on a lot around a lot of different places. Like promoters would, would love to get flyers from all the different areas. You go to a record shop and they'd have walls full of all these flyers for everything. You know, we always talk about the, the Midwest scene and how there's like a 10-hour 10, 10 drive that's acceptable to do on the highway one way or another from your city. You get all the flyers from all those areas. You you get you package them all up, and basically promoters from different cities would look at these things to try to figure out who were the big DJs they should be bringing in. It was everybody was misfits. Everybody was just like one man islands trying to figure out what the hell was going on everywhere else. And Donnie was one of the ones who was really good at it. But he also went the extra mile. He did things like he set up a voicemail line and he would actually answer every call and especially zeroed in on the complaints and tried to fix things that people had problems with. But you know, he aimed for the unique at his parties. He once brought in a choir to sing Amazing Grace at 3 a.m. at a party. He would do things like book the Sugar Hill Gang, you know, the legendary first uh, hip hop artist to make a record. He had a dance contest with Rerun from What's Happening, the 70s uh, sitcom. So, you know, he's definitely uh, capturing the zeitgeist there. And New Orleans is just a perfect party town. So, like, by 1997, he's drawing 2,500 people a day to his multi-day Mardi Gras extravaganza. Uh, you know, in 1996, he had 2,000 people. By 1999, he's got 5,000 people. He had to expand to multiple buildings adjacent to the State Palace Theater. He built a deck on the roof up there. Uh, they kind of had their own you know, a big pool to fish in because there's no dominant scene within a 10-hour drive of New Orleans. So, you know, had had a big area to themselves. He opens a record shop right next to the Palace Theater, kept that open all night during the raves. He even put it between the main arena, the main theater, and the jungle room. So if you wanted to go to the second room and hear some jungle, you'd have to go to the record store. And so they would have nights uh, on show nights where they would do as much as sales as they would do in a normal week. So definitely a good, uh, good business model. They also featured a lot of um, mixtape makers, mixtapes made by local DJs like Strife, who's uh, Daniel Milstein, who specialized in UK style hard house. He also had Trent Cantarelli, who specialized in progressive house, but he was also selling mixtapes from New Yorkers like Micro and Frankie Bones. And, uh, you know, um, people like DJ Monk of Tampa, from who's also in Rabbit of the Moon, which was one of the big acts at this time. He talked about how distinctively fun the New York or the New Orleans vibe was. He contrasted it with like the New York scene where clubs like Lime, Limelight, you'd have all these club kids bombed out on their minds on ketamine and you'd play into a bunch of zombies who were just standing there. Maybe after the show, they tell you how great it was, but it's a lot different in New Orleans where they're visibly, obviously having a great time. Yeah, different cities have different levels of energy, and unfortunately, it usually uh, corresponds to where the scene is in its kind of life cycle and what drugs are are currently prevalent in the scene. And uh, as we talked about in a couple of the other episodes, sometimes you just have a bad a bad scene that's gotten into meth, and it's like three years in, and everybody's burnt out, and it's just bad. But New Orleans was was still happening, and uh, still a lot of fun, and everybody was really giving it their all. Yeah, and and then Matos once again cleverly weaves in uh, the Winter Music Conference, which had been going on in in Miami. I think we talked about it at the Circuit House episode we did, and maybe a couple others. But uh, Donnie actually meets Tommy Sunshine at one of these, the Miami Winter Conference in 1999. He was hosting a party featuring DJ Laurent Garnier. Is that how to say it? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, I'll, 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 you're just going to let me hang. I'll, 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 I'll. 
I, I, I mean, like French people say it differently. English people massacre it, but everyone's okay with it. It's cool. Like, don't worry about it. Yeah. All right. All right. So um, as long as I'm forgiven, it'll be all right. But the attendance of the, the Winter Music Conference had tripled between 1995 and 1999. There was a flood of music industry money from the big Electronica push of 96, 97, 98 that we've been talking about. By 1999, there were parties for virtually every style of dance music every night. It was easy to find good uh, MDMA, um, but people were noticing that the scene had lost its idealistic communalism and was becoming big business. Uh, Jonas Sharp of Spacetime Continuum uh, is kind of the one that Matos chooses for the telling anecdote. He was set to play at 1 a.m., at the Astral Works WMC party in 1999. He was supposed to go on after, I'm not sure after or before, but he was on the bill with Fat Boy Slim and Todd Terry, but he was booked for the 1 a.m. slot. But the other acts managers were giving him trouble and, and trying to push him back uh, and, and work his stop time, start time. So he was kind of like, you know, screw this. This is not how it used to be. This is not the scene. Uh, and it is, you know, it's a very different thing. It's like, You've got celebrities like Iggy Pop who happens to live in Miami just dropping into parties and stuff. And so it, it's changing. And one thing that this book has really kind of gotten across to me is that, yeah, it took a long time for electronic dance music to take over and become pop music in America. But that meant that there was this underground scene and there were these virtues and this communalism and this this plur vibe that I don't think you had as much in Europe or England where it was this overwhelmingly popular scene. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I know from people who have gone to the Winter Music Conference that it's a bit of a culture shock because you get there and all of a sudden you're dealing with exclusive door policies and and bottle fees and all sorts of crazy stuff where you're not allowed like through the door without like, you know, paying a hundred bucks or something like that. It's just very different and uh, very business oriented. And this is one of the big complaints I have just about the fact that we're talking about uh, how electronic music made it in, in America. And it's really just from one metric of, of, you know, music sales, all of a sudden, okay, finally, the music industry is able to make money off the scene. But the underground was always there. The underground was, you know, hot and cold in different areas of the country, but it was always surviving and, and, and going. Um, and yeah, you go to a winter music conference, and it's kind of an embodiment of a bunch of the stuff that you didn't want to happen. So there's a weird love hate thing that a lot of people have with the WMC. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about the downfall of the underground scene in America and why it does ultimately have to go big um, as we get later in this episode. But first, more stuff from the, the Winter Music Conference. Matos uh, cleverly weaves in Moby here, and we've talked about Moby throughout. Um, he should have just had his own chapter. I'm tired of going back to Moby for a paragraph every <laughs> – like, I know it doesn't fit with his event thing, but just put Moby in one place. I don't Stop. know. I, I kind of like the recurring Moby because it, it lets you catch up with where the scene is at the time. And let's take a sponsor break. When we come back, we'll hear about Moby's biggest stunt yet. And maybe stunt's the wrong word. This would be Moby's biggest caper yet or biggest album yet. In fact, it was the biggest album in the history of electronic dance music, at least the first uh, generations of it. He puts out play uh, um in 99 i want to say and it followed up his animal rights album where he had tried to play he did play rock music i mean it wasn't like he was some kind of total horrible amateur it's just not what people wanted to hear from moby but he puts yeah, animal, out animal rights had dance music it had rock music and it had a couple of tracks that would have fit on play as well so there was kind of the 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 the, the remnants of of what he was what he used to do something he tried to do and failed and then what he eventually would like succeed uh, astronomically in yeah and so for play like we mentioned last time he had he had found all these samples of of old library of congress recordings of african-american performers um but it was so successful by the winter music conference of 2000 he's the big draw he plays the crowbar on march 23 play won the village voice critics poll for best album and back in the day, The Village Voice was the New York Alternative Weekly. It had Robert Criscow as its its main critic, but it had tons of other uh, great music writers, Greg Tate, Nelson George, all kinds of people wrote for The Village Voice. And their critics poll was really closely watched, even though The Village Voice was you know, nominally only distributed in New York City. 
writers all around the country would cover, you know, would follow and take their lead from the Village Voice. So Play winning the big the critics poll for best album was a big deal. But even bigger was they got the track Porcelain featured on the Beach soundtrack, which was a Leonard Leonardo DiCaprio movie that came out around that time and very soon because his management worked Hollywood so hard like in 1996 they had a party for quote every music supervisor in Hollywood at the Slamdance Film Festival in Utah and they really worked those connections and then uh, in August 1999 ABC picks up Body Rock off the play album for a Dharma and Greg promo and soon over the next couple year and a half more than 200 promos ads soundtracks and other placements for play are made by April 2000 all 18 tracks have been licensed by somebody for something in the media then he did a version of Southside with Gwen Stefani of No Doubt uh, singing vocals that pushed it even further over the top it spent 14 months in the Billboard top 100 that's not quite Dark Side of the Moon longevity, but it's pretty good. Sold over 10 million copies worldwide. Definitely the biggest album to ever emerge from the rave scene. So this is I kind got, of Moby's big moment. Yeah, I got a, I got an issue where this is the biggest biggest album to emerge from the rave scene. Uh, maybe because it doesn't really emerge from the rave scene. Like I, I get Moby came from the rave scene, but like it's kind of like if they, you have a rave artist who then makes like a a movie score or a movie soundtrack or an ambient album, is it really still a rave album? You know what I mean? It's uh, yeah. I, it, it's kind of like how last week where we were talking about Prodigy having like the biggest rave, one of the biggest rave albums, but but it was kind of remarked upon that you know as soon as Fat of the Land came out, it was put into that alternative box so it, it rave there there was no rising tide that raised all boats here these albums were were taken completely out of of any kind of rave context and just moved to where where they needed to be to be more commercially successful yeah and the fact that moby um became so commercially so successful based on his placement and ads and movies and tv shows like reynolds simon reynolds talked about this and we discussed it in the last series that had the kind of effect of making electronic dance music ubiquitous but never triumphant it's not like it was the dominant musical form but it was still everywhere and corporate america really liked it and that kind of uh added to kind of the, some of the weirdness of this period and what we'll see in the weirdness of the coming decade and then he talks about you know um the New York City club scene and how the crackdown started there, essentially. Limelight, infamous for the murders and the and the club kids, was shut down in 1997. But instead of easing up after that, the Rudy Giuliani administration in New York just cracked down even harder. And so by the turn of the millennium, ravers who want to go to clubs in New York City are having to put up with like you know, security guards putting their hands in their underwear, opening their mouths and being inspected, really degrading, uh, humiliating stuff. Meanwhile, um, you know, the burnout is seeping into dance music culture all over the country. Like Minneapolis at the Twin Cities party, ravers are eating drugs off the floor. Meth is taking over. Ecstasy is not working for people. So this, like you said earlier, this life cycle of these dance and drug scenes, you know, it's got an ugly end. And, and yeah. uh, it talks about some of the West Coast people, the way they dealt with it was that a bunch of ravers from Seattle and San Francisco flew to Hawaii for a campout rave on New, Year, New Year's of the millennium. And Sunshine Jones and Moonbeam uh, of the Dub Tribe sound system led a crew out there. So, you know, things are tough all over. And we're about to talk about what, you know, the ton of bricks that lands on Disco Don in New Orleans. But the scene is kind of falling apart everywhere else in the country at the same time. Yeah, I mean, we talk about turnover, and from my experience, it's about two to three years for a scene or a group of people in a scene to kind of come in, have their honeymoon, and then the ugly divorce. And some people try to hold on and stay in for way too long. Uh, they at least need to take a break. And then hopefully you have a whole new group of people who are coming in uh, who are able to pick it up and carry it and, and go through that whole same boom and bust thing. But uh, yeah, it makes sense that if things were bopping in 1996, by 1999, you're seeing like all of the corpses and uh, and everything else, all the fallout from those three or four years of hard partying. Yeah, there's always a price to pay. And in Disco Donnie's case, it was in, in the form of uh, police and uh, drug 
enforcement agency surveillance. And so one day in 1999, he wakes up and three agents are banging on his front door saying, who are the drug dealers? You know, and they offer to pay him to be an informer. They're like, how much do you make a year? We'll double it if you'll rat people out. Um, but he's, you know, he's just a music promoter. He's not, he knows that people are buying and selling drugs at his shows, but he, that's not his business. So he's not into it and doesn't know, but he gets really paranoid. And then like he goes, to the Netherlands just for a vacation with his mom and you know uh he's on a train and suddenly he's getting searched on the train he's the only person on the train getting searched and they're going through everything and his stuff then at airport security they take him in the side room and you know he gets the impression they think he's in Holland to buy drugs with my mom <laughs> you know like uh just really infuriating and maddening and then by May 2000, the NOLA DEA office, New Orleans, Louisiana DEA office, is convinced that Donnie's a front man for the Burnett brothers who own the State Palace Theater. They think they're the big drug dealers behind the whole thing. They just can't seem to fathom that you can just make money promoting dances and, and that that is a business in itself. And 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 this is where I think a scene really has to become ubiquitous if it's going to survive like in the 60s in england the rolling stones were being persecuted you know they were being busted over and over again some of the busts were legit because they had drugs other times they would have cops planting stuff on them they kind of hounded brian jones to his death but keith richards said that once they did the hyde park concert in london free concert downtown london half a million people show up at that point the police gave up because hey, these guys are stars. This is mainstream. We're not going to beat this tide. And that's kind of what Rave had not managed to do. And so the backlash comes because there's been so many news reports about ODs and drug busts um, that... Yeah, the, the big thing was there was 400 uh, hospitalizations due to drug overdoses directly tied to the Free Base Society Party. So it's one of those things where you're like, uh, you really want to hate the DEA and hate the government for doing what they were doing, but they were, they were, it wasn't even a response to an imaginary uh, moral panic. There was, there was a quite the spate of, uh, of drug overdoses. There was a drug death that went on in uh, uh, like a 17 year old girl died of uh, ecstasy overdose and uh, overhydration. Uh, and uh, so that, that's what kicked the whole thing off the whole investigation. And the DEA's big mistake is they treated it like it was some kind of cartel thing like there was one kingpin behind the whole thing where if they had anybody with any experience in the scene they would know that it's a bunch of little boutique dealers who are all like basically there might be a couple of suppliers uh somewhere on the fringes but it's definitely not the people who are the faces of the party promoting the party doing it or the venue owners who are in one place that can't disappear that are doing it it's uh it's not like that. And it was the same thing that the DEA did when they went after all the drug dealing in the limelight is they refused to believe that it was a, you know, a, a network of, of dealers that were just low level people. And they kept on trying to tie it back to Peter Gation, who was the owner of the bar. And that's why it never led anywhere because, you know, they would let all of the low level drug dealers go in exchange for lies about who was in control of the whole thing because they <laughs> wanted to hear those lies and they yeah. wanted to hear that it was Disco Donnie and it was the owners of the uh, of that venue. State Palace Theater. Yeah. yeah. Let's go ahead and hear our next track. Uh, this is Josh Winks. Are you there? The Size 9 Remix. That was the size nine remix of Josh Wink's Are You There? Why did we pick this one? Uh, you know, Josh Wink was the musical coordinator for the for the Disco Donnie documentary, so I thought it would be good to pick one of his tracks from it. And this is one of those ones that if you listen to the track, you might not get it. But in the movie, placed in context at a party, you hear it and you're like, oh, this is trippy and cool. So just, you know, grab that 30 second snapshot that kind of sounds like Josh Wink meets Richie Hodden and threw it in. Hopefully you guys can get a feel for it. Cool. And before we talk about the raid, um, 
let's talk about what was scheduled for future Fat Cat Hong Kong Fui, which actually did happen. All these people, they did actually pull the show off and get to play. But Matos calls it a representative snapshot of the U.S. rave scene at the end of summer 2000. So he's picking this party not just because uh, there's this pivotal drug bust but or drug raid that didn't really end up being much of a bust. But um, it's also because musically it's very much sort of a this is where the scene was at the time. So let's go through the lineup. You had uh, DJ Sandra Collins from Kinetic Records. Uh, one of the of few Phoenix. trans, one of the few trans producers in um, in uh, North America who is getting their their due. Yep, and trance is is one of the hot sounds of the moment. So so that's the trance sound there. Also had DJ Rectangle, who's a hip hop turntable. It's one of these people like Qbert um, or Terminator X. You know, somebody who can manipulate the the turntable with all the tricks of scratching and um, you know fake crossfading and all that kind of stuff. So a turntablist uh, part of the scene. You had Gene Ferris, who's uh, coming out of Chicago um, and basically has evolved into progressive house by this point. Mato says that Progressive House paid the bills in the Chicagoland area by this point. You had uh, Christian Smith of Sweden um, bringing his supple techno. And this guy played half of his time in Europe and half of the time in the States. So the scene in the States, even though it's not a mainstream pop scene, the United States is still such a big population that even a healthy underground scene is still a draw for DJs from Europe. So it's, it's a big part of the international business. And like you say, people like Sandra Collins, and Josh Wink and others are making records that are hits in Europe. So it did originate in the States, and the States is still uh, punching uh, its weight pretty well. Then you also had a, a number of dr- drum and bass DJs, like AK-1200, whose real name was Dave Minner. And you also had Renegade Hardware and Bad Company, both of which are UK drum and bass acts. Um, and Bad Company had a track called The Nine, which was later named Drum and Bass's Greatest Track Ever by K-Mag in 2008. Debatable. And, yeah, well, but, you know, I'm just saying that's <laughs> yeah, that's an yeah. opinion, but it's it's got a certain punch because of the, the magazine and the credibility there. And, and Mato says that this kind of sets um, – they played live were, were pretty hard hitting in contrast to the kind of stuff that was getting the press accolades in most places like Ronnie size and his rep- represent um, album new forms won the Mercury prize winner in England. Um, and you also had Aphrodite doing a jump up style. This was the stuff that was getting all the big press and getting the critical accolades. But when you heard somebody like AK 1200 or Renegade Hardware live, it was much more of kind of a hardcore, hard hitting set. And then you also had DJ Monk, who's in Rabbit of the Moon, coming out of Tampa. But I guess he was playing uh, Hong Kong Fui at as a solo artist, this DJ Monk. But then that leads them into the whole discussion of Rabbit in the Moon. I think you mentioned Rabbit in the Moon in a previous chapter as being kind of the ubiquitous, almost to the point of being tedious, headliner at rave after rave. And it's largely because, you know, it's a three-person act, DJ Monk, along with uh, Confucius, a.k.a. David Christopheri, and then this guy Bunny, a.k.a. Steve Econ, uh, who's a performance artist and frontman who would wear these crazy costumes. So you already had Bunny doing this act. And then um, they hired the OVT audiovisual team out of Chicago in 1996 and just had absolute state-of-the-art visual techniques yeah, going this on. Was before, this was before that kind of stuff was, was, was really usual. Like everybody was kind of running off the same uh, terrible 240p uh, visuals that we were downloading off some uh, generous Dutchman's server over in the Netherlands. But uh, these guys here were... Uh, projecting things onto weird shapes like now it's a pretty standard thing that you have uh like a video mapping onto like a like a weird circle or sphere or triangles and stuff like that but these guys kind of uh were were pioneering that so you would you would have all of these globes hanging from the ceiling of different shapes and the projectors were projecting perfectly onto them and nowhere else to 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 create this amazing visual and then of course you have bunny dressed like a like a like a disco ball or in a glow suit uh, glow stick suit he had about six or seven different costumes that he rotated through and you know one of the reasons why once you've seen him you've kind of seen him is that you know this the six or seven costumes kind of stayed the same for about a decade <laughs> yeah but at the same time they had this really booming remix business going on and and um you know matas's playlists uh, on Spotify for this chapter. And I highly recommend always 
uh, check out Michelangelo's Spotify playlist. And also be sure and look at the mixography section in the back to hear the live sets that were being played in this period. But, um, you know, Rabbit in the Moon is is doing big time stuff like they remixed Sarah McLachlan's Possession just on a bootleg basis. But Network, her record label, heard it and sent them. Uh, the multi-track and a contract. They're like, we want you to do this right. Like, you know, so and they had a number of, of, of hits like that. So, you know, big doings and very much representative of the scene at the time. But now let's get down to it and talk about the rave. So 8 PM Saturday night, a dozen uniform officers suddenly appear at the state palace theater. And, and Matos talks to one of the record store clerks who was just kind of sees these cops says they weren't quite dressed as full on stormtroopers, but pretty close. And he immediately thinks to himself, ha, huh, somebody's in trouble. And next thing he knows he's being detained. <laughs> and everybody there is detained. They detained over 30 people. Everybody had to be processed to leave, which means you know you had to turn in your driver's license and get searched. Uh, they're dumping people's bags out on the floor, toothbrushes everywhere, hard drives are hitting the the the, the concrete hard. Um, Robert Brene of, of the State Palace Theater has to take agents to the office where they're grabbing all his business paperwork. Um, Donnie's warned not to show up, but he arrives at 10 o'clock uh, anyway. He sees a massive line down the block waiting for the show. By the time he gets in there, you know, the, the DEA's in there like doing this comedy routine. They're chasing nutrias around. And nutrias are these like sort of giant rats. They're like, I guess they're even bigger than beavers. They're the, I think they're the biggest rodent, but they're these impossibly big rodent and they're chasing uh these things around the theater at gunpoint and the only drugs they find is one joint on a bartender but they're doing things like seizing the bottled water and the fortune cookies uh and it's all kind of mysterious but people can tell it's big stuff but then suddenly they put on masks the police put on masks and leave the building like they don't want people to know who they are um and the party opens up anyway at 1 a.m they managed to talk to all the DJs and everybody, everybody managed to play, even though they did shortened sets. But like first thing they, that happens is that uh, Donnie sees a girl having a seizure from the, the strobe lights. So he's like, really, you know, like it's just kind of a, a bummer, but still nonetheless, three to 5,000 people showed up and played. And everybody had a wonderful time. And you got to give it to Donnie for having the balls of steel to actually just say that the party is going to go on anyways. Don't worry about it. Everybody stay in line. We'll open this thing up soon. And he's hanging out like they tell him not to come, but he comes anyways because he's always had this kind of naive idea that since he's quote unquote innocent, he has nothing to worry about. But he sits in this restaurant across the street from the venue, kind of just waiting for everything to die down. And a bunch of DE agents that are looking for him uh, come into the restaurant and sit down and they're talking while he's sitting behind them about looking for him. And he's just quietly sitting in the background <laughs> waiting for them to get up and go. So it's a funny story about how he just kind of keeps his cool. He's across just watching the cops trying to bust him in this event, just waiting for it to end so he could open the party up and keep raving. Yep. And and this is the point where Matos, and we kind of covered some of this already in the show, but Matos goes through the data that had the DEA so alarmed, like uh, uh, MDMA seizures were up, U.S. Customs seizures of ecstasy were up from 381,000 tablets in all of 1997. And in the first two months of 2000 alone, you had 3.5 million tablets getting seized. Uh, ER visits from ecstasy, emergency room visits are up 20% nationally. Uh, you had a 1999 Morristown, New Jersey event that ended with 80 arrests and 15 hospitalizations. You had a Miami party that had one death, 10 hospitalizations and 30 drug arrests. You know, Chicago had clamped down especially hard. They'd already killed the original house scene in the 80s with regulation. Now they added a new city council bill that fined unlicensed or uninsured venues up to $10,000 and imposed a 2 a.m. curfew. Um, And also there was a really nasty drug called PMA that was sometimes being substituted for ecstasy. And that is a much nastier drug. you know, and, and people like John Cornyn, who was the Texas attorney general at the time, 
Um, but uh, said thing, and it's still just legendary dumbass, but he said, quote, most party promoters meet the legal definition for criminal street gangs. So, and then a San, San Bernardino County supervisor said, any rave is ipso facto promotes an outcome that's destined for disaster. So this is the context it's happening in. But let's hear our last song. This is Test Your Ashpool Gravity. Gravity by Tessier Ashpool. Is it Tessier, Tessier? Uh, Tessier. Tessier, Tessier Ashpool. Why did we pick this one? I, I just thought it was a great track from that documentary. I really, you know, that one there was just, I was looking through when I was like, well, I, this one I just really like a lot. It's kind of got a lot of old school elements to it, but uh, some new, new school vibes as well. So yeah, just personal pick on my part. Yeah, excellent, excellent choice. That and that soundtrack is kicking. Um, it, it is a great soundtrack, and also the soundtrack works in a little bit, just a taste of New Orleans bounce, which is a distinctive flavor of hip hop that evolved in um, New Orleans around this time. And I'm and I'm curious why Matos didn't mention bounce. I wonder if there was just no connection between the bounce scenes and the rave scene at all, or or uh, if there was and he overlooked it. But I'm I'm curious about that because because I love these crossovers between what's going on in hip hop and, and the EDM scene. But now let's talk about the case against uh, uh, Disco Donnie and, and the Burnett family, uh, the owners of the State Palace Theater. So the DEA had been investigating him since January. Uh, and this is fall of 2000 by this point. They had attended eight Disco Donnie events and they bought drugs on premises at every one of those events. They were looking at hitting uh, Donnie and the Burnett's with charges that would re result in 20 year sentences if they were found guilty. Plus they were going to throw on the continuing criminal criminal enterprise uh, charges, which carried another 20 years to life on top of that. Plus they were going to hit him with the crack house law, which was a 1986 law written in a panic after Boston Celtics number one draft pick Lynn bias died of a cocaine overdose the night of the NBA draft. This was a law that made it, impose a $500,000 fine to any owner or manager of a property used in any way to manufacture, distribute, or for the use of controlled substances. So just a brutally powerful law. Um, and Donnie was, quote, the test case for a wider crackdown. And that's why they were doing things like seizing the glow sticks and bottled water, because those were, quote, drug paraphernalia. And this yeah. is something... Yeah, go this, ahead. this was kind of the first uh, the crack house laws were obviously designed to, to, to hit crack houses and had never been used against uh, like a like a bar or a, or a music venue or anything else like that. So the, the what they were trying to do when 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 they were grabbing like glow sticks and bottled water and stuff like that is uh, under the crack house law, anything that's considered drug paraphernalia can be used to prove the fact that it is indeed a uh, fall under the crack house law. So and anything like uh, pacifiers or Vicks VapoRub or, uh, or or candy necklaces or anything else like that, even bottled water, which is insane, uh, was considered to, to be evidence that, uh, you know, you were operating a quote unquote crack house. Yeah. And they still have this backwards view when they do law enforcement on race and dance events. They frown on people trying to keep kids hydrated, like you know, when the promoters try to take these steps, like have drug testing stations so you can see if what you're taking is what you want to take, or they are trying to encourage hydration, the authorities look on that as as aiding drug use and drug abuse, which is you know, just infuriating and totally backwards. Um, but so this is the context that Disco Donnie and the Burnett's find themselves in. They they offered Donnie a one year plea a plea deal for one year in prison if he if he flips. They offer the Burnett's a two year deal if they plead guilty. And Donnie's lawyer is even like, you know, telling him, Hey kid, take the plea, take the plea. I had a client who flew a plane full of cocaine from Columbia and he 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 had to take a plea. And Donnie's like 
but I didn't fly in a blind flung cocaine, you know, <laughs> like he's, he keeps waiting for somebody to notice, hey, I'm not a drug dealer, I'm innocent here. So finally, the ACLU uh, c- takes over, they send in Graham Boyd, one of their attorneys, makes it a freedom of speech issue. Um, I heard a, a really interesting story about how uh, how the ACLU uh, got Donnie off or, or basically got Donnie out of the hot seat is that basically he told them Donnie to to say that he would accept a plea deal with the with the with the DEA, which basically kind of took the DEA sights off of him. And then about a year later, when it was time to sign the deal, he was like, I'm not signing that deal. And then he pleaded not guilty. At, at the court. But basically, the way that the DEA works is they're, they're good cop or they're bad cop. And they're, they'll be good cop to you if you if they think that you're participating in their in their organization and willing to give them whatever they want to go after whoever they feel is the bad guy of the moment. You just have to keep yourself from being that bad guy. So this is this is actually a pretty smart idea is basically say you're taking the plea deal and then just wait and then say, I'm not signing anything and then plead not guilty. And then they will have spent all this time not collecting evidence on you and they'll kind of be stuck with uh, a weaker case. But be careful because they will try to screw you uh, hard if if they can, if you do that. Um, and Donnie kept trying to promote. On October 7th, 2000, he um, was booked to, to host a Moonshine of America tour, tour stop at the State Palace. They couldn't do it at the State Palace, so he moves it out the country at a club called Pure Country. Uh, Carl Cox, the British DJ, uh, is one of the DJs there. He was not impressed. There was a Confederate flag over the stage. He's like, no thanks, I'm going to stay in the bus. You know, he's a black guy from England. He doesn't want any part of the Deep South, and I do not blame him at all. That stuff is extremely scary. Um, and there's cops and news crews everywhere. The cops are searching the crews coming in. They still have the event, but it's clearly marred. On October 27th, he tries to hold his vampire stripper sluts from outer space party, had to move that from a state house theater to a warehouse that was next to a Cajun restaurant. Um, the police managed to contact the owner and scare them off, so the event's canceled, and that was it for Donnie trying to book big parties. He does uh, find a gig um, working, putting club nights on at the House of Blues, which the House of Blues is a super corporate music venue in New Orleans. He was able to get away with that. But yeah, like you said, by March 2001, the case is quietly dropped because there was no evidence. And there was a ton of embarrassing media mocking the DEA for for you know seizing glow sticks and stuff like that. The Burnets uh, pled guilty on the crack house law and paid a hundred thousand dollar fine, which was still cheaper than going to trial. And that's they what... apparently only paid ten thousand of that fine. Ah, they said yeah. they said they said they only had ten thousand in the bank account. They paid that, and that was the only money ever paid. They were told by the government, like, you, we don't care what you're pleading guilty to. You just have to plead guilty, plead guilty to something. So it was a complete face-saving operation. Yeah, and I'm glad to hear that because, I mean, the State Palace guys did nothing but rent out their their venue for dance music. Um, you know, so so good thing that it, it put together. And then, um, you know, Tommy Sunshine, though, points out that I don't even think it took a month. The entire thing, and I think he means raves nationally, just crumbled. Everyone, no matter their role, DJ, sound man, ticket taker, you're looking at a $10,000 fine for being involved in a rave. So this immediately has this massive chilling effect all over the country. And, you know, one of the sentences uh, that I flagged was, if you were involved in this culture, it was going to end up with you in federal prison. So that's a pretty ominous note to end the chapter on. Yeah, and this uh, the 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 crack house laws being used against rave promoters, and then the 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 rave act pushed by President well then then just uh, Senator uh, Senator Biden, uh, yeah. like basically basically really put the spook on everybody. I mean, Kurt X, who was the guy who was doing all those Midwest Satan raves with even further and everything, even he was like, okay, this is no longer a good idea. And when you're scaring away the Satanists, then then you've got really <laughs> no one left, you know. So like I can't overstate how much it freaked everybody out because now you had a law that that was the way it was written you were guilty and if they wanted to come down it was kind of funny when you when you read the details on on the disco donnie case how it's like they had no idea kind of what was really going on but and and that's kind of good in a way but it's bad in another way because you could just get you could be just a bystander and in the wrong place at the wrong time and you could be just be connected somebody some somebody or something and have your your life just ruined. So, 
yeah, this this was scary and bad times, and and it kind of leads us into the next decade, which is kind of a decade in the wilderness. Is that a fair assessment for electronic dance music? I mean, it was definitely like I'd say like 2001 to 2005. Like again, the underground never goes away, but you've, you're going to lose all the people who are trying to build something, and everybody's kind of doing it fly by night now, and everybody's trying to do it anonymously. No one's trying. You know, it's it's hard to do these kinds of events if you're not trying to build up to something and and it leads to the worst tendencies of a scene kind of coming out so it wasn't good for for really anybody the fact that that we had such a heavy breathing government down our backs yep and so we'll continue the discussion next time when we talk about the electro clash festival of 2001 for ryan harkness i'm nate wilcox and we've been discussing michelangelo matos's the underground is massive how electronic dance music conquered america Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ryan and Nate talk about the turn of the millennium, 9-11, mashups, electroclash, and the arrow when Vice magazine laid down the laws of hipsterdom. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.